Anybody ever tell you you're a loser? Well, that's funny because if somebody's telling you you're a loser, then that must mean that they think they're a winner. And if they think they're a winner, they need to thank God for you because without a loser, there would be no winners. So... So some of us that are losers, uh, we, have a, we, we serve a very vital function <laughs> in life. <clears throat> so, but that's, um, you know, we use those terms to judge people. And every time we look down on someone or accuse someone else, we're placing ourselves in the position of God and we're saying that we are better than they are. So... Look at that guy over there, or look at that woman over there. Uh, man, that, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. So what I'm saying is, I'm better than that. And we're judging. And God's the only one who can do that, who only has the right and the authority and the ability to do it correctly. Now sometimes we start um, even judging ourselves. And it's one thing to know about the forgiveness of God, it's another thing to apply it to people around you. And it's an entirely different thing to receive it yourself. Um, some folks struggle with that. Uh, they're happy and, and content to believe that God can forgive other people their sins. But they struggle to forgive the sins them, themselves. And if we failed in a great way or repeatedly, it becomes harder to forgive ourselves. When we can't forgive ourselves, then it becomes increasingly difficult to forgive anyone else because we're operating out of hurt and out of guilt and out of shame and out of fear. So I want us to look in John chapter 21. Um, this is post-resurrection appearance of Jesus where he, um, disciples have gone out on the Lake, Lake Galilee and they fished all night and haven't caught anything again. <clears throat> And it reminded, this is chapter 21 of John, is going to be a, a reminder of Luke chapter 5, which is when Jesus first called uh, many of the first disciples. And those same men are here in John chapter 21. And uh, the situation's the same, location is very, very close. And uh, the dynamics behind the miracle that's taking place are exactly the same of when, as when God initially called these men to follow him. Now, this is after the crucifixion, after the denial, the betrayal, after the, the running away in fear, after breaking all the commitments that they had made to Christ. And then he comes and he is inviting them to, uh, to have breakfast with him when they've caught nothing. He provides the catch, the miracle catch again. And then he sits down with them. When they get back to the shore, hauling in this net that's full of fish now, they see that over here there's a fire already prepared and bread and fish. Jesus already has the meal prepared. And he says, come and eat. And it's after the, the eating that the confrontations take place. And this is very consistent. Um, you remember the way that God dealt with Elijah, who was running away from Jezebel, running for his life in great fear. And 
He was very discouraged, very depressed, sat down and asked God to take his life. He wanted to die. He said, I'm finished. I can't, I can't do it anymore. And the first thing God did was he sent an angel to give him a good meal and to help him sleep. And he, he, he slept. God woke him up, gave him a good meal. He slept again, woke him up, gave him some more food. He says, now you can come. And after you get, then when he got there, then he said, okay, now we can deal with the issues. So I want to focus in on the last part of this in John 21, starting with verse 17. Now he's already asked Peter if he loved him, if Peter loved Jesus. And Peter's already responded twice that he did. And each time... Jesus said, feed my lambs or feed my sheep. Now we're in verse 17. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So, um, you know, Peter had failed, and he had failed greatly. The night before Jesus was crucified, on the the night uh, just preceding there, um, all the disciples had made renewed commitments to Jesus. We we are with you in this. Um, we We are committed to you wholeheartedly. And they backed it up to a good deal, hadn't they? They had left their jobs, they had left their homes, they had left their families, they had gone wandering with him around for three or three and a half years, and um, they had experienced the, the difficult times and the, and the victories and the challenges and the animosity and the hatred and fear that were directed towards Jesus. It overflowed onto the disciples. And they had been consistent to walk with him. And on that night... After having the Passover meal, they renewed those commitments. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they did not know who it was. They did not know. And it was only after the fact, when they looked back, that they said, oh yeah, these are the symptoms. This is kind of like us, right? Uh, Something, some person is caught in a scandal and some really critical thing. And we look back and say, oh yeah, I saw that coming. (laughs) We didn't. But, you know, we stop back and think and say, yeah, that kind of pointed to that. But the point is, we missed it. We missed those indicators. And it's only afterwards, looking back on those indicators, that we said, I should have known. I should have foreseen this coming. But we did not. And the disciples were in that very same position here. Um, Looking back, they could say, oh, yeah, we could see those tendencies in him. But on that night when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they did not know. That's why they were asking, Lord, is it me? Because they understood the frailty of their own hearts and the fragility of their own commitments. And so it was a good question for them to ask. And it's a question we need to ask ourselves as well. Um, There's a lot of things going on that, from a biblical viewpoint in our world, is not right and there are betrayals on a daily basis, even from within the church and in the church at high levels. 
But instead of pointing accusing, condemning fingers, we need to look at ourselves and say before God, Lord, is it me? Am I the one who's caught up in this myself? And so Peter even stood up and said, Lord, if every one of these men forsakes you, I will not. I will follow you to the death. I will lay down my life for you. And he meant it. I think he was as sincere and as honest as he knew his own heart at that point. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, before the rooster, it's already late at night, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, Lord, it'll never happen. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, woken up out of a sleep with torches and guards and animosity and threats. He didn't know what to do. He grabs his sword. He's ready to fight and lay down his life. He's going to fulfill what he promised. And he's ready to do that. And Jesus said, wait a minute. It's not that way. You got the wrong kingdom. You lay down your sword. And he did. But then comes the confusion. Uh, if I'm not supposed to fight, what am I supposed to do? What do you expect of me? And Jesus expects us to be part of a better kingdom. A kingdom not based on fear or strength or intimidation or power, but a kingdom that's built on the power of self-sacrifice. The power of love that's greater than all the hatred and animosity that the world can give. And Peter was confused and he ran, but he didn't go far. Now to his credit, he's going to follow. It's going to be at a distance. And that's the problem. It's difficult to follow Jesus at a distance. You know, you really, you, you can't do it very well. We're either walking with him or we're not. And we can follow at a distance, but there's going to be a price to pay, and there's going to be questions that are going to be challenges that we're going to have to answer. And those challenges will either draw us closer or push us farther away if we're following at a distance. And so they start asking him, and he starts denying. And um, the rooster crows, and the Gospels say that Jesus was bound in the presence of the high priest on trial, and Peter was out in the courtyard, but there are open places. And Jesus bound. It just says, he just turned and looked at Peter. Rooster's crowing. Peter's just sworn with an oath and called a curse down on himself. I never knew the man. And he looks up and he sees Jesus. <clears throat> and his heart breaks and he, he goes away weeping bitterly. And then comes the news of the resurrection. And uh, the last time Jesus looked at Peter, uh, he was the loser, and he was the failure. So Jesus is asking him now, three times in John 21, Peter, do you love me? And it says there in verse 17 that... Um, Peter was grieved. It hurt. But growth often comes through hurt. 
challenges and pain and suffering can make us bitter or it can make us better. And Peter was grieved. Um, He didn't know how to say any better than what he said. Lord, I love you and I want to follow you. Often the only way forward is to recognize and face the core of the problem. Now the core of the problem was this. It was Peter's relationship to Jesus. And the question that Jesus is asking him is confronting that issue. So the only way forward is to face the core of the problem. What's really at stake here? Oftentimes when there's an argument or when there's a a division between people, um, it's at a surface level. And we try to deal with those surface issues. Somebody said something or did something or didn't do something or didn't say something. Anyway, it's caused the problem. And we're trying to correct that all the time ignoring the real core point of the, of the argument. Um, so we're dealing with symptoms and never really dealing with the root cause. And those kind of symptoms are going to come up again and again until we allow the Lord to, in our presence, in His presence, with each other, to confront the core issue. That's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. It's a painful thing, but it's the way to healing. Like surgery is a painful thing, but oftentimes it's the very thing that saves your life. So, this is Jesus coming to terms with this group of men who had all run away and broken their commitments. It's Jesus getting these men together. He's singling out Peter because uh, Peter was one of the central spokesmen here and was more visible and vocal than the others. And so Jesus is showing us how do you and I respond when someone fails us or someone betrays us? What's our response? What is our response when we have failed or betrayed someone else? Now, what if Christ dealt with those other people the way you and I deal with them? Or what if Christ dealt with us when we have failed and when we have betrayed? So it's like in the garden there with the sword. We respond out of the wrong kingdom. Kingdom, <coughs> kingdom of self. And when you have a kingdom of self, you have to defend it. And so we build walls, barriers that separate us because we don't want to be hurt. Uh, We don't want to fail again. We don't trust ourselves and we sure don't trust the other person. So that's our response usually. But Jesus does not respond that way. So Jesus is helping Peter to search every corner of his life and renew his commitment without reserve. And then he's going to offer him a chance to build something positive from it. Feed my sheep. And God gives him the gift of new responsibility. That person failed. They're unreliable. I'm not going to trust them ever again. 
What if Jesus said that about you and me? Because we've all sinned and we all far fall far short of the glory of God. Does that mean we don't get a second chance? Apart from Christ, we don't. So Jesus comes to look for losers. That's who he's looking for. He's coming to look for failures. He's coming to look for the people who are weak and have betrayed and people who are just um, unreliable. Those are the ones he's looking for. That's why he died. To change us, to transform us. And it's more than just words. He's going to pick Peter up and the other disciples and he's going to entrust them with the kingdom of God on earth. Every one of them failed. Every one of them failed. He picked people nobody else would have picked to start with. Who would have picked somebody like Levi, a tax collector? Who would have picked a guy like that? He's betrayed his country. He's cheated people. He makes his living by by milking people who have very little to start with. And he's grown wealthy. Who would have picked somebody like that? Simon the Zealot. That's a freedom fighter. Who's going to build the kingdom of God on somebody like that? And how is this guy going to get along with, with Matthew? You know, and he got that group of people, a very motley group of, of individuals, and he's welding them together and using them to bring, usher in the kingdom of God on the earth. We show our commitment in how we live. It's as simple as that. We show our commitment by how we live and we are shown our acceptance by what Christ asks us to do. Elijah had failed. He felt fire coming down from heaven and all of that, but Jezebel's still in power, threatening to kill him, and he's running for his life. And he says, I'm, I'm tired, I'm weary, I give up, I can't do this anymore. Um, it's beyond me. And God says to Elijah, you're exactly right. It is beyond you. That's why you need me. And so Elijah goes and he's pouring out his complaint. And he repeats it two or three times. God keeps asking him, why are you here? And he keeps telling him, I told you. I did all that stuff and it didn't do any work. It wasn't effective. He's killed all the prophets. I'm the only one left. I, it's just me, God, me and you, and I, I can't do this anymore. And God challenges him, gives him a fresh revelation, and he gives him a task to do and sends him back. He sends him back. He has to go right back into that situation. And now instead of running away from Jezebel, he is on a direct collision course with her. He failed. God fixes him up, recommissions him, and sends him back. That's what he's doing with Peter right here. That's what he did with David, right? David was a great man, and he, great, he, he had great commitments, great faith, and great failures. In spite of those failures, though, he still was a man after God's own heart, and so was Peter. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved God and he wanted to do what was right. And he messed up big time. People died. A lot of people died because of his failure. God didn't just write him off. God came down and met him and picked him up. 
And he becomes the sweet singer of Israel who wrote most of the, about half of the Psalms. Um, he becomes the model of a godly king. Uh, becomes a man of faith, a man after God's own heart, a man who loved God and was God, one of God's friends. Or we could take a guy like Paul, the apostle, who started out a persecutor of the church. Or Jacob, or Moses, or Abraham, or you, or me. Here we are. In the Psalms, Psalm 139, it's that long psalm of search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way within me. Because David, who's writing this psalm, understands God knows him better than he knows himself. And he starts talking about all of these things. And he says, there isn't anything in my life, as you go through Psalm 139, there's nothing in my life, no area that you do not know and you are not aware of. There are no hidden secret sins in the light of the presence of God who is light. Everything is exposed and open to the eyes of him to whom we are responsible. He knows it all. We can cover things up. We can hide it from people. We can trick a lot of people or most people, but God knows our heart. He knows what's going on in our minds. He knows our motives, our attitudes. Even when we're confused and don't even understand ourselves. God does, which is a hopeful thing. God, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Help me. Um, I, 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 I know I shouldn't have done that. I didn't want to do that, but I did it. I, I, I didn't want to say that, but I said it, and it, I can't take it back. So God knows and he understands. So that can be a great, a great comfort. Psalm 139 starts out, God has searched me and known me. And at the end, he prays that again. Search me and know me. See if there's any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And so he is praying that God would help him and search for him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, You've got this thing lived out in the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's talking about starting with verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. Does it? The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. He who died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. From here on, we're regarding no one according to the flesh. So I don't have the right to say, you loser. That's according to the flesh. Jesus sees him as someone he died for. And redeemed can become the power of God on this planet. 
So we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. This is Paul writing. He condemned the church because of Christ. He was killing people, putting them in prison because of Christ. Because he thought he was a fake. And he had judged him according to the flesh because of the cross. But on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him and set him straight. And Paul says, I don't judge people like that anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the new creation Paul speaking. The old has passed away. It's gone. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, all of us failures, all of us losers, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul says, therefore we are Christ's ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an awesome statement. Look around at the people around you. Those people are the righteousness of God. Look in a mirror and you can say to yourself, I am the righteousness of God because of what Christ has done for me. He's taken my sin and given me his, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's an awesome thing. So he's taken us and given us the responsibility. God is now making his appeal in this world through us. And he's picked us up, done away with the guilt and the shame and the fear and the weakness and the failure. And he said, now you are my representatives. So... This is what Jesus is doing with Peter in John chapter 21. Basically, if you do a word study on the words there, what he's asking is, Peter, do you love me like I love you? That's the real question that's being asked here. We have a lot of different definitions of love in this world. Most of them are sinful. And most of them have nothing to do with love whatsoever. Jesus is asking Peter... Do you love me in the same way that I love you? And that's what he's asking of us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, so that's a a definition here. It's not a definition of God. It's a definition of love. And what he's telling us is 
that unless our love is a love that's like God's love, it's not love at all. It's selfishness. It's manipulation. It's using people for our own ends. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this is what Jesus is asking Peter. Do you love me with this kind of love? He's already told him in John 15, no greater love has anyone that they lay down their life for me, for his friends. Peter said, I will lay down my life for you. I will kill for you. And Jesus is saying, if you kill for me, you do not understand love for me. Nothing at all about love for me. I'm not asking you to kill for me. I'm asking you to lay down your life for me, which is a, a far harder thing to do. So Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me like I love you? In the background, there's the cross. And Jesus is standing before Peter. He's got nails prints in his hand. He's got nail prints in his feet. He's got a, a slit in his side where they pierced him with the spear. And he's asking Peter, do you love me this way? That's what he's asking. Because anywhere the body of Christ is there, there's going to be prints of the wounds. It's a costly discipleship that he's calling us to. And Paul describes this love in 1 Corinthians 13. It tells us what it isn't, and it tells us what it is. And when he ends that, one of the things that he says is love never fails. And in the cross, we can see the love of God not failing, but succeeding. The empty tomb, the risen Christ, his appearances, um, these are things that are telling us that what looks like in the eyes of the world is a failure becomes the most powerful success story the world has ever seen because of Jesus Christ. So as we come this morning to communion, the elements are basically um, the fruit of the grape, <laughs> wine or grape juice, fruit of the grape, and bread. These are the symbols of the Eucharist or the, the Last Supper. Wine comes from grapes. How do you get the wine out of the grapes? You destroy the grape. <laughs> you, you, you stomp it and you press it and you squeeze it and you crush it and you deform it and you get all the juice out of it. And we have bread. How do we get bread? Well, we take the grain of whatever kind of bread you're making and you smash it, you crush it, you pulverize it. And sometimes we have an oil, oil for healing or anointing or commissioning 
oil, what's that made out of? And the scriptures, it's made out of olives. This too comes from the olive being crushed and broken and poured out. It symbolizes the Holy Spirit. When they left the upper room after they had communion at first Monday, Thursday, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is an olive orchard. And Gethsemane means that it's a place of crushing. And it's there that Jesus um, poured out his soul before God. If it's possible, if salvation can come in any other way, let this cup pass from me. And then he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, he was in agony. He told the disciples, My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. I need you to watch and pray with me. And they fell asleep. It's important. So he woke them up. And he said, I need you to watch and pray with me. And they fell asleep. And he woke them up again. And they were embarrassed, but they fell asleep again. And Jesus is sweating in agony, crying out to God, and uh, the place of crushing. So once he got up from that prayer, the cross was already an accomplished fact in his heart and in his mind. There was no wavering. There was no question from that point on. There was no, um, no hesitation in any sense. And there was perfect, complete, total peace. In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain, that was all very, very real. He died. That was a real death. But in the midst of all of that, there was an unshakable peace. And that's what he's offering to Peter and to you and to me. So three days later, Jesus rises from, a, from the grave that we might know the certainty that our sins are forgiven and we have life everlasting through his blood and the power of his resurrection in this present world. It's a promise for the future, but it's a promise that begins the moment we accept Christ and should be becoming more and more effective as we walk with him. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's talking to the early church at Corinth because they were abusing even their communion services. Um... And so he was writing as a correction. And he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance for the, of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many. And he asked the disciples to each drink of it. He said, it's a new covenant. And 
you do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. It's for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He had already wrote, written earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So what Jesus was offering Peter in John 21 was an opportunity to participate in the new life that Jesus came to give. It is a hands-on, active, living out. And he told Peter, uh, in the past, you got up and dressed and went wherever you wanted. When you're an old man, somebody's going to come in and they're going to tie your hands and they're going to lead you someplace you don't want to go. And he said, he's, uh, John writes, and he says, um, he said this to signify by what death Peter would glorify God. And then P- Jesus looks at Peter and he said the same thing that he did the first day that he called him. Follow me. Peter said, well, what about this guy? And Jesus said, nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. You follow me. And that's what he says to you and to me. It's not what anybody else is doing. It's between me and God. He's coming to take away the guilt and the fear and the shame of my failure. To give me his victory and his righteousness. And he says, follow me. Walk with me. Live your life like I would. And Paul said that's what he's done. So that's what he invites us to this morning. This is the Lord's table. It's not ours. We're all sinners saved by grace. This table is open to anyone who is willing to come. Don't feel compelled. There's no compulsion here. You are free because Christ has set us free. If you'd like to participate, you are very welcome at this table. So will those who are serving communion please come forward?